0: No, we're not doing the gong again.
1: Okay. Well, you
0: can't do it every episode. Why not? Because you have to save it and make it special. Or if you do it every episode, it'll be like, that's the thing that they just do every episode. First of all, you don't want to be the gong guy.
1: What? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh,
0: you don't know. Yeah, no. more than anything, no, I no, do. No, 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 Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.
1: They're trying to take our gongs. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I opened the, I opened the podcast with a giggle.
0: <laughs> My name is Brace. Hello, Brace. My name is Liz. Hello, Liz. What's his name? His name is Young Chomsky, and this podcast is called... True or not Oh, usually I do that, and so that that I know that's why we wow. flip it and reverse it. Liz pointed her finger at me, but I was so I was so
1: engrossed. I so a lot of people don't know this, but I watch movies during when we record mm. podcasts. I watch movies, I fidget spin, uh, I stim in general. okay. Um, I don't know what that means. And I make shake and bake methamphetamine, sort of under the oh, table. Oh, I thought you were
0: going to go with shake and bake chicken, which no. my mom made what for me. when that? I was. You that? don't know that? No. You don't remember shake and bake?
1: I have a vague memory of it. Oh, man. Is it is We it ate good? so
0: much crap when I was kids. Yeah. When I was yeah. a
1: kid. I was raised on a strict vegan diet, which is why I am four foot eight and I weigh 19 pounds. <laughs> and my insides uh, – well, They look like milk. It's just one big gut. You know what I mean? It's just one big intestine that kind of takes the form like, of the other. Like it's called like
0: a, the the you got Balloon Boy on the inside. I got Balloon Boy. They did a full body scan of me.
1: And first of all, you've never seen so many internal moles in your life. Mm. Because my moles go outwards and they go in. So I have moles basically covering the entire inside. Sometimes they crisscross each other. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I have. That's like a rose bush. you got to trim them. It's six inches out, six inches in. But then
0: they cross each other.
1: There's one mole that I have, Liz, that Mm. goes straight from the back of my nipple to my shoulder blade. Okay. It's fucking insane. It's like a bullet. I'm going really, straight through you, but it's I, a mole. I have kind of a lot of structural integrity because of it. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I have been voted most cancerous man in America for the past 15 years of my
0: life. Yeah, but the good, the good guys call you mole-man. They do
1: call me mole-man. I was thinking the other day uh, uh, about you seeing that mole-man.
0: Oh, yeah. He yeah. wasn't a mole-man. He was a mole-man. He was a mole-man. Yeah, I was, th- I was thinking about that. What were you uh, thinking
1: about it? I was just thinking about what he looked like the other night. Yeah.
0: Um, mm. Have you seen the episode with – the Seinfeld episode with the pig – The pig man? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, no! <laughs> it's a Pigman! <laughs> a pig <man. laughs> So
0: then you got an idea.
1: Yeah, okay. I don't remember what the pig man looks like from you that
0: You don't really episode. see him, just a little flash and a oh. squeal. Damn. Well –
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we actually have with us a guest. I hope he didn't listen, just listen to that Please. intro I, because we
0: t- had such a great conversation with him. He's so smart, he's smart so great, and shit, yeah. Yes, very captivating, great writer. Yeah, and now he's going to hear me talk about Mulmen and think, "What the?" Fuck did I guess I just the go thing on? is though, he
1: already did the show, so like you yeah, can't take no back. You can't, you can't take it back. Yeah, no flipping and reversing. Well, some some podcasts we shouldn't name, but maybe no have deleted some episodes, we'll never do that mm-hmm. at the request of a guest. Welcome, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Oh, you want to know? I just said that so that you would be like, who did
0: that? We, yeah, was that a
1: thing? Uh, no, I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. I mean, it's, any, yeah. Anyways, uh, it's, it's uh, here is, we have with us today Oswaldo, or as I call him Osvaldo, Zavala, the author of "Drug Cartels Do Not Exist," and uh, we have a very—it's a very good interview. I'd say wide ranging. Wide that's ranging. That's what they would say. A wide interview. ranging interview uh, about his provocatively titled book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're talking cartels. We're talking drugs. We're talking DEA. We're talking narcos. But we're also talking narratives. Yeah, we're imaginaries,
1: imageries, floating signifiers. You guys looked at each other when you said the empty vase, and I was just like, "Damn, that's probably a concept, huh?" <laughs> Because in my line of work, I also dealt with a lot of empty vases. But you know what I was doing? I was filling them with flowers. Love that. And so we're going to fill the rest of this episode like an empty vase with an interview. That doesn't make sense, but like no, but with the, a bouquet of so an interview. So I'm
0: going to give him his flowers.
1: So, ladies and gentlemen, no. take up your watering cans. You don't know that. No. Take, All right. Uh, what is that? Don't worry about it. I won't. Ladies and gentlemen, take up your irises. Take up your shears. Take up your watering cans and pull out your empty vase because the interview begins now. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. The main event we have with us today, Osvaldo Zavala, journalist and Latin American literature and I fucked that up already. You're going to give me a failing grade, but you know what? I'm not going to stop. Latin American literature professor at the City University of New York, author of four books, including Drug Cartels Do Not Exist, Narco-Trafficking in U.S. and Mexican Culture, published by Vanderbilt University Press. I don't think I needed to actually add that part, but welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and and, uh, an honor to be with you guys.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much.
1: I am... As I said to you guys before we started recording, thrilled to finally be able to say this. You begin your book with a provocation, (laughs) Monsieur Zavala. Uh, The title is a very provocative title. Drug cartels do not exist. Um, And it's also, you know, the cover looks cool when it says it on there. Um, But uh, what do you mean by that? Right.
2: It is a provocation that I stand by. Yeah. um, In the sense that I... So much that I don't even think it's really a provocation, but a, a statement of truth, a mm-hmm. statement of fact. Um, a lot of people misunderstand it, of course, and, and I expect that so. But when I say drug cartels do not exist, I do not mean that drug trafficking is not real or that the violence is not out there, mm-hmm. or that it shouldn't worry us, yeah. right? Um, none of that, of course. Uh, Drug trafficking is, uh, is a very serious uh, problem for governments, for social um, uh, viability, you know, livelihood of people, and it is um, a question that should be tackled from different perspectives, uh, including uh, policing, right? And, and so I agree with all of that, but uh, the idea of the cartel uh, that we commonly employ to describe the phenomenon of, of drug trafficking is false and is politically motivated and is ideologically driven by yeah. a mentality that in my book I call the securitarian mentality, the, meaning the national security discourse mm-hmm. that first U.S. institutions started articulating in, in the, sometime in the mid-'70s. Um, and that permeated into Latin American culture, in particular in countries like Mexico and Colombia to justify and to legitimize uh, the, uh, the gradual militarization of the country with the horrible uh, consequences that we all know, right? Uh, over uh, 400,000 uh, killings uh, since the militarization began in 2006 mm-hmm. and over uh, 100,000 for forced uh, disappearances. Um, so we're talking about o- about half a million people killed or disappeared under the so-called drug war, and so um, I think uh, one of the main justifications and motivators for this discourse and this poly- and, and this is, uh, the, and, and this, I guess, um, uh, how do you call it? Aggressive militarization effort yeah. uh, is the word cartel, and the word cartel uh, is the one that uh, cleanses the 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 violence and the brutality of soldiers and agents fighting in the streets because it it portrays an enemy that is supposed to be so big and so terrible that only soldiers armed to their teeth can Mm. help us and save us from.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, right, because the the word cartel, I mean, I think up until it was like deployed to describe drug traffickers in Central America was really, I mean, people would think of like OPEC, right? And like price fixing in the 70s and like the big producers like, okay, we're price fixing or we're controlling oil supplies and production and we're all colluding together to kind of like get what we want. And And now it's just basically synonymous with what seems like realistically more of a kind of array of different kind of small, I don't know, small town trafficking enterprises. Yeah, but it, Constellation. But it's, yeah, Constellation, totally. But it is really politically motivated because like you say, it gives this image that the only way to fight this would be with a massive state military effort.
2: Right, and, and because the word, it's been borrowed from the field of economics mm-hmm. into uh, uh, the judicial, the, the policing yeah. and the military effort of the so-called drug war of course, is uh, from the beginning misused. And it's so much misused that it, it carries all kinds of absurd and arbitrary meanings and very contradictorily depicts a reality that um, that refutes itself. So sometimes a cartel, it's a pyramidal structure that is so powerful in mm-hmm. size and so large in capability that it can you know, challenge the state in Mexico and, and all kinds of institutions. Transnationally, and that supposedly allegedly has all this presence in over 100 or 120 or 150 countries, depending on who, who you're asking, you know, what, what expert
1: <laughs> yeah, is yeah, explaining yeah, this yeah, to you. Yeah.
2: Or it could mean, like you just said, a bunch of little organizations that uh, fight among themselves and that uh, don't hesitate to kill each other over turf, right? So it's a very contradictory and, mm-hmm. and dissonant um, word that explains it all and doesn't explain anything. Right? Right. And like you mentioned, it was first um, used in the, sometime in the late 70s when most people had in their mind the OPEC for uh, the war cartel. Right? Yeah. Uh, these countries that produce oil together and that manipulated the price of the barrel. Yeah, right? famously um,
1: OPEC was, I don't think, looked upon very kindly in right. the I, 1970s. Well,
2: because, you know, uh, the U.S., of course, could not compete yeah. with the producers, right? So right. It, they became some form of enemy. Yeah. So um, that... The, the politics of OPEC in the U.S. migrated uh, to antagonize uh, tra- traffickers uh, in the same uh, in the same vein. Yeah. Um, of course, when it did, uh, like uh, like I was just mentioning, um, it described a very dispersed, very uneven field of producers, of traffickers, of consumers that in no way, or shape, or form, amounted to an enemy. Yeah. So what I argue in drug cartels do not exist is that the word invented the enemy, right? manufactured mm. the enemy. So it's not so much that reality copied the word, but rea- uh, the word invented the reality that we started seeing. And we started labeling uh, cartels. Two, three people moving some drugs or, you know, somebody like Chapo Guzman, you know, whose supposed uh, reign of terror, you know, couldn't uh, could not be calculated to any reasonable figure and who made Forbes magazine's list of Mm (laughs) multibillionaires. And so um, um, it is very interesting then to look at the history of this language, because when you do very easily uh, you find that there's no materiality to any of this, right? And and it's usually just words that are being peddled uh, uh, across the the board and that become adopted and and, and used and reused so much that somehow we uh, end up accepting them at face value.
0: I think before uh, I've read that you know you've referred to this as the kind of security critique, right? Which right. I think is very interesting because it's it's kind of adopting, like you say, this like national security lens Absolutely. through which to understand or, yeah, I guess explain the violence that's being experienced in Mexico, right?
2: So one, one, one main argument that I would like to make in my book from the very beginning is that um, the history of the drug trade as a phenomenon is one thing. Yeah. Right, I mean, you know, you can look at the history of traffickers, you know, how it began in a state like Sinaloa or in state of Chihuahua, you know, the the old timers, you know, who peddle drugs in the city of Juarez or in the city of Culiacan. That's one thing, and it's been done brilliantly by historians and journalists. Uh, a recent book about that, for example, is by British historian Ben Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called *The Dope*, and it's a really it's called uh, what *The Dope*.
1: The okay <laughs> it's, I like a, it's a
2: history of Mexican traffickers based on official archives and it's really great yeah uh, and and you'll find the like the mini micro histories of all these traffickers and and that that is something that has a lot of value right to understand you know just the, how how society you know uh, dealt with that uh, across mm-hmm. decades right from the early nineteen tens uh, to the present. But what I do is very different, right? Uh, what I what I want to say is that uh, you you can do that kind of history, but then you also need to do a very different history based on how we talk about the drug trade as a war, mm-hmm. and for that you need to understand the history of national security, not of the drug trade. Yeah. Um, so I I separate both, right? And my main argument then is that in order for you to really understand what we mean by the drug war, you need to look at the institutions manufacturing that idea, right? The idea that we're at war with traffickers, not about traffickers themselves. You, you don't need to really know who Chapo is or what the Sinaloa cartel is supposed to be made of. You need to really look at the people telling you what they are supposed to be, yeah, right? And the history of that uh, discourse know how it came to be from the 70s and how it escalated across the late 80s and into the 90s until we became used to the idea of a cartel being such a powerful organization that we all have to fear for our lives and that would end up you know, killing half a million people in just a few years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. I'm 33 years old. And so from the time I was a teenager and sort of aware of the fact that there were drugs and that those drugs came from somewhere and that they were manufactured by somewhere, someone moved and then sold by people. Right cartels have loomed pretty large. We were sure. talking about before we started recording about the movie Traffic. Right, I saw Traffic when I was very young and that informed naturally a lot of my thinking on that. And, right. and I think that like, I mean, I, I use myself sort of as, as an example here because I'm somebody who moved throughout, especially my early years with mostly getting this sort of information from fictional works that I Which read. Which is what most people do in Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so all of that knowledge that I thought I had was actually delivered to me by basically Hollywood movies. I wasn't sure. exactly watching a lot of foreign films. Hollywood movies, which, which are <laughs> themselves often, especially if they use U.S. military assets, Absolutely. Um, you know, advised by agents from, I mean, not only the Pentagon, but probably the DEA, Absolutely. CIA, FBI, They all get of these a say on people. the
2: productions, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, they get a say on the productions. Um, Big say, by the way. And, and so it, it was only as, as I got older and realized that like well many things that are portrayed to me as true in the media are not exactly true or certainly not true in the, the way that the you know the Washington Post, the New York Times might portray them um, And why should the same not necessarily why should the same not be true of of drug trafficking for instance right. um, and and as I as I, as I learned more, I realized that like yeah, it's not just like these big cartels full of people with you know golden ak-47s. And, you know, rhinestone-laden fucking f- off-road vehicles. <laughs> um, it's actually like there is a – there is a, there is obviously, a, a, you know, these sort of mafias, these, these cartels, I guess, that exist. But they're much more integrated into the Mexican state as opposed to a parasitical element with outside of them or outside of it. And, and the, you know, the same can be true of a lot of you know, criminal elements in, in, I mean, most countries – um, and that's something that you say in your book is that like the uh, way the way that the, the, that these 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 cartels, as institutions are portrayed, are something that is that is always opposed to the right. Mexican state, external to external, the state, external right. exactly. And, and you say that's not the case. Well, it historically, hasn't been that way um, from the '70s
2: and on, in particular, when we started growing our um, up security apparatus, um, the Mexican state um, had. Such a powerful presence that most criminals uh, that meant anything um, at the political level were co opted, right? Were Mm. working for uh, police institutions. And so by the mid 80s, for example, um, the most notorious uh, traffickers of the era who were all based in the city of Guadalajara in, in central Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they all carry police uh, IDs. They had police escorts. And, you know, they were happily living life, you know, and yeah. uh, as part of the system. And they didn't seem to be bothered or, or, or be bothering anybody about their business. Um, that changed only... Because um, the U.S. paradigm of security changed as well. Um, in the mid 1980s, um, Ronald Reagan understood that um, uh, the idea of fighting uh, global communism was coming to an end. Mm. Right, the, they anticipated the end of the Cold War, and. Um, as they were doing that, um, they had the brilliant idea of gradually shifting the enemy uh, of national security from the communists, the guerrillas, and and you know people forming rebel armies in Nicaragua or in Colombia or elsewhere uh, into trafficking into yeah. drug trafficking. So there's a secret document uh, signed in 1986 that designated uh, traffickers as the new national security threat. Um, and when they did that, um, well, the, the entire board shifted, right? So all these traffickers that were, you know, happily working with uh, police institutions in Mexico suddenly found themselves on the wrong end of history, yeah. right? They did no longer have a place to be. And um, and so this also coincided with the, the, the kidnapping and the uh, torturing and killing of uh, Enrique Camarena, the DEA agent, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, died in 1985 in Guadalajara. And so the U.S. seized that opportunity to promote this big radical shift in the national security uh, ideas of Mexico. So we, they started cooperating. Um, the traffickers started uh, stopped cooperating with the, with the institutions and they became then the enemy. So mm-hmm. all these guys went to prison um, and then uh, the Mexican government created a new institution uh, uh, that promoted national security. W- back in the day, it was called CICEN, uh, Centro de Investigación y Seguridad Nacional, it's kind of like a, the Center for Investigation and National Security. Gotcha. In 1989, right, the, the key year of uh, the end of, uh, year, of the Cold yeah. War, right, the, yeah. the Berlin Wall is collapsing. Um, Everything's changing. And uh, by that same year, 1989, President, then President Carlos Salinas de Gortari, is the very first president that publicly says uh, that uh, traffickers have become a national security threat, yeah. something that was unheard of, of course, mm. and that nobody uh, reasonable <laughs> could accept in Mexican political history, right? Because all these traffickers were employees of the system, right? Mm-hmm. How How is it that they are any right. threat, especially in, 1990, in 1989 when all of them were dead or in prison? <laughs> yeah.
0: Just <laughs> right. watching like the so, real life invention of a criminal. Exactly, right.
2: right. So, so this is something really fascinating about the, the drug war discourse and narratives that um, the things they talk about usually don't have any real models, right? Mm. <laughs> they have no referent, right? So national security threat, but where? I mean, they're, in, they're not even traffickers out there of any notoriety that that preoccupied the political class, right? Yeah. So by 1989, truly, literally all of them are dead or in prison. And there's a couple interviews that some of those uh, notorious traffickers gave during those years saying, for example, that they first heard of the word cartel when they were already in prison, It's like, well, back when we were working, they said, you know, this idea of cartel didn't exist. I mean, uh, that came later when we were already, you know, caught. (laughs) Um, So the word, again, right, started circulating Mm -hmm. and the last people to hear about it. Were the
1: traffickers themselves? And, 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 you know, you, you talk about in the book too, like the 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 term cartel. I mean, as we mentioned earlier in the interview, usually implies some sort of like you know large coalition of right, people right. who set prices for things, who maybe set the organizing yeah, Organizing, corporations. exactly, right. yeah, yeah. It essentially, functions the board of directors of like a large, broad corporation, sure. right? Uh, that doesn't seem to be the way that cartels at all. In, yeah, in, in in real life, actually, to the contrary, operate. right? Yeah. To the contrary, right? So that this is
2: why uh, the the word is so uh, um, you know heavily misused, right? Uh, it doesn't. It, it means actually the contrary, right? So so how is it that a cartel is fighting in it among itself, <laughs> among its members? To, uh, for turf and not for controlling or for you know making sure that your product gains as much value as possible, right? So it's completely contradictory. I, I kept asking every whenever I have a chance uh, when I sit down and talk to uh, economists, and two things that, that I hear from them is this: it, it always comes to, to to the discussion. A, the word makes no sense mm-hmm. when when it is used in the criminal context, and two, and this is something that that keeps. You know, it keeps me wondering all the time that no serious economist thinks of money uh, of drug organizations uh, and their income as something relevant for the world economy, mm. right? No serious economist will tell you, oh yeah, you know, the money that you know the Sinaloa cartel is making, it's such an empire that with or without it, you know, things could be really, really. <laughs> Yeah, you know, common shambles. None of that, right? They, they don't even factor it in. It inflation doesn't is matter. Inflation is a keyword they want to discuss, but traffickers have nothing to do with this, right? right? And, and so, you know, drug trafficking for them is just something in, uh, in discourse that they receive in a distant echo, right? But, it, but it's not really relevant for, for world economy, for world numbers, right? So it's, it's something really interesting because here we're all talking about trafficking as uh, a major problem yeah. for, for the hemisphere, Right. And and economists will tell you not at all.
0: <laughs> when you say that these institutions that kind of reproduce these these words, recirculate these words, these images, that this language that we use to kind of describe these phenomena, like it seems like the mid to late 90s through the mid aughts was really like, like you mentioned traffic, yeah. like this was the time. It was important, yeah. It was like the films. I know there was a lot of literature, Mexican literature that Absolutely. was really focused on US literature now these too. stories. Yeah. And I mean, you think about post 9-11 America too. Yeah. Absolutely. And obviously the invention of DHS and right. its sort of assumption of, taking over from what was INS on the border right. and, and, and really just the, or my immigration became a part of the issues. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And ice. just yeah. the really when full throated militarization. Absolutely. You kind got, of you, you got to a head. A right.
2: It's really interesting, right? Because, um, um I, in my new book, uh, I tried to do a history of it, right? And, yeah. and, and to see how discontinuous and arbitrary and disruptive this language is. So it's mm-hmm. not like a like a history that makes sense, but rather it's, it doesn't make any sense precisely because it's um, changing so radically and the words themselves uh, start meaning things that, that that back in the 70s did not mean, right? So mm-hmm. for example, the word cartel in the 70s was first used in a congressional hearing in 1977 mm-hmm. or to, to my knowledge at at least, right? Um, and the DA was using it to describe this group of traffickers in Sinaloa that were using drugs in exchange for guns, right? Mm-hmm. That was kind of like, oh my God, you know, these guys are buying weapons. Um, and um, by the late 1980s, uh, they're not just buying weapons, they're the national security threat, yeah. right? By the mid-95, 1990s, by, yeah, around 1995, maybe 1996, traffickers are not only a national security threat, but the threat, right? And the Juarez cartel back in the day in in, in those years uh, was the most meaningful boogeyman that you can think of. Right. And of course, by the 2000s, Everything gets even uh, more radical with the appearance of um, uh, DHS and, and and all the post-9-11 um, mentality. Yeah, right? I uh, mean,
1: with national security becoming like really the watchword right. of the 2000s. It col- you know I mean? starts
2: colonizing every aspect of uh, civil society. Exactly. Right? Uh, and the same
1: happens in Mexico,
2: right? So the, the, the idea of security... Became uh, so much intertwined with with governance right. that nowadays uh, we talk about national security for even for healthcare for the COVID vaccine for yeah. migration for all kinds of things right um, and we now have um, the army you know uh, supervising operations of the international airport uh, of all custom entry points mm-hmm. uh, of the southern and the nor- northern border right the military is basically in control of the country so it's a very paradoxical moment precisely. Because Because we keep hearing, especially from the U.S., that traffickers are in control of chunks of the Mexican territory. I mean, sometimes the U.S. Northern Command talks about uh, 35 percent of the Mexican territory is taken by traffickers. When we have the most powerful military presence we ever had in our history, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. policing the totality of the territory, right? If if the ter- if a territory is, in, is is under somebody's control, it's under the military control, yeah. Not under trafficking tra- drug traffickers or, or any sort of a criminal organization.
0: So the military militarization of Mexico, I mean, it really happens under this this banner, There's right?
2: But it's a it's a long history, right? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't just. Uh, Begin as uh, some people uh, have it uh, would have it uh, in 2006 with the right wing president sure. Felipe Calderon mm-hmm. and, and his deployment of uh, military presence to fight the drug war. Right, I mean that was the most uh, visible point. Of this history, but in reality, it's a process that began in the late '80s. -hmm. You can even argue that it begins in the '70s when the first uh, joint U.S.-Mexican operations began to uh, to eradicate uh, uh, poppy and marijuana. In, in, in Northwest uh, Mexico, right? Mm. The the so-called Operation Condor, right? right? Um, different
1: for those listening. Right. I, the same, exact same name, but technically a different Operation Condor <laughs> than the other Operation right. Condor. Right,
2: although conceived under the same national security paradigm, Yes, right? yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, although the other one was a little more upfront about
2: bringing drugs.
1: Right. The, 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 <laughs> <laughs> right. So Operation, uh, uh, or what we
2: call Operation Condor in, in the rest of Latin America had to do with regime change, yeah, with yeah, fighting. Yeah communism. Yes. Uh, Chile perhaps is the most uh, visible yeah. example for that, right? Uh, uh, Argentina. that. Da- Argentina, yeah. bringing down You know, Salvador Allende and ins- installing a, a military rule. Yeah. Uh, in Mexico, you didn't need to do that because we had a friendly government right? Yeah. to the U.S., a government that cooperated from the start with national security interests of the U.S. In fact, when the U.S. approved the national security um, law in 1947 uh, that created, for example, the Department of Defense mm-hmm. and that created the the CIA Mexico um, created its own Dirección Federal de Seguridad, kind of like the the secure the federal security directorate, uh, yeah. a, a federal police shaped uh, in the model of the the FBI, and that was actually created with FBI mentorship mm. and guidance. Yes, and we started immediately from the start, following the lead of the U.S. So, what is this? What what is it that this police did? Well, it fought, it fought against uh, communists, right? Uh, students uh, who had sympathies with China or with global communism, um, people who supposedly were infiltrated by the Soviets, right? Yeah. Um, uh, of course, uh, labor movements, uh, teachers' movements, right? Yeah. And, and so we were a replica of uh, the U.S. Uh, Cold War, yeah. right, uh, in our own territory, and and this is why, again, we didn't need regime change, right? We, what we needed was just simply keep uh, in alliance, right, uh, with uh, the way the U.S. described uh, national security. So throughout those years was communism, and then by the late '80s, drug trafficking.
1: Yeah, and it's it's funny because prior to that, I mean, Mexico had been sort of held the same position as like France in a way for people fleeing from from a lot of these, you know, from Germany or Spain or places right. like that. And then you're right, like in the post World War II era, uh, especially right. from the 1960s and 70s. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's am um, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, so um, I'm reducing a lot of, you know, what the Mexican uh, system back in those uh, decades did, because it, it is, it, it was truly a fascinating and complicated uh, uh, geopolitical um, environment, right, mm-hmm. uh, where Mexico was uh, fol- following closely the lead of the U.S. in national security uh, ideas, but at the same time was sheltering, for example refugees from Uruguay, from Argentina, yeah. from Chile, you know, from the coups that happened in those countries. Well,
1: well, something you talk about in the book, and I'm going to mispronounce this word, even though I know how this word is pronounced, but sovereignty. <laughs> sovereignty. Sovereignty. Right. sovereignty. Yes. You talk a lot about sovereignty in the book, um, or the concept of sovereignty, and and both sovereignty of the Mexican state uh, in terms yeah. of the, the cartels, but also in terms of the U.S. Yes. Yes. Uh, and there, it's 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 it is interesting how that's portrayed because the at least in America uh, the. The popular, I guess, um, portrayal of the Mexican state is it's a weakened is a, state, right? What's that? A weakened, a, a very state, much weakened yeah. state, right. and the
0: permanent emerging market, right? Yes,
1: right. yeah, exactly, a permanent emerging, <laughs> or market. or even a
0: failed state, yeah, even, yeah. From, from, depending from some on who wants to be elected, I guess. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And uh, but 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 no such words are are used to describe the U.S.'s uh, relationship to, to to the Mexican government. Um, right, it's a very interesting
2: uh, discussion, right? Because um, I think in, in from the start we need to to explain that under neoliberal rule and and neo, uh, the neoliberal paradigm, the idea of the state gets. Uh, implicitly weakened, yeah. right? Uh, in the sense that uh, supposedly you are to reduce the functions of the state to allow for the free flow of capital, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in this sense, um, the the size and the power of the state uh, shrinks, right? And and as it does, right? Um, uh, other uh, informal criminal economies emerge, mm-hmm. right? And 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 of course, this is the conundrum for for the neoliberal. Uh, moment that we're we're living, right? Uh, but you know, people like David Harvey or Wendy Brown, you know, people who've studied neoliberalism uh, with greater detail, would explain that you know not only that it's false, but but to the contrary, right? The the states like the Mexican state or the Colombian state have actually expanded in size, mm-hmm. but not maybe for uh, welfare of the people, mm-hmm. but for security purposes. Right. Right. So our uh, security apparatus grew exponentially uh, during the neoliberal era. Right. From the late 1980s to 2006, we doubled up the size of the military. Right. And and the Marine. And so what we have then, it's a very powerful security apparatus that uh, can, you know, claim sovereignty of the territory, right? And and put all these criminal organizations in check. And at the same time, right, we hear the idea that cartels are emerging and they're challenging the state. And so what happens is that we create uh, a, a false necessity for keep augmenting the size of the security apparatus, right? And this is something that I keep uh, bringing to, to the fore in my book, right? If anything... The state in Mexico hasn't been weakened, right? At least not in the security perspective. To the contrary, we are oversaturated by the state, right? The presence of the state is one of the most deep and profound, catastrophic, traumatic events of Mexican recent history.
0: Yeah, it's a funny paradox. I think that um, you mentioned Wendy Brown, and she describes this kind of like... She says it's like a democratic deficit within the like neoliberal logic, which is like kind of perverse where it's like – like you say, there's this sort of supposed weakening of the democratic institution. So you have a weakening and a kind of dissolving of public space of a like – of a a public while at the same time then to overcompensate for that deficit, you have this like – like th- like the angry roar of the actual like like it of the state of the security right. like arm of the state, and so you have this like weak state with these big border walls. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And this like huge police force, and they go hand in hand. In well, this because there's theatricality kind of and
2: a performative aspect to security, right? right? So yeah. the border is always. The, the borders the borders are always in crisis, right? Caravans. Something, right. Something's always about to go down, yeah. right? Yeah, I
1: think um, there's something it, real big right now right down, now they're right, doing right? this. Yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah, and yeah, they keep yeah. on going yeah. in
2: that direction, right? There's got to be a crisis, right? Something has to be about to blow up yeah. so that you can continue justifying uh, the very lucrative business of war, right? This is where, for example, my friend Todd Miller, an independent reporter based in Arizona, has done... Uh, with uh, extraordinary detail. His book uh, that I recommend, by the way, is called Empire of Borders. And, and what he does is he follows the trail of weapons and, 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 and the security business that emerges from uh, the global north, into uh, the global south, right? He takes as a model um, the the Israeli-Palestine conflict, right? And, and the very lucrative um, uh, agenda that has produced all kinds of uh, tremendous business for uh, companies like Elvid Systems or uh, Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these companies that sell weapons that you know use that model to replicate then in places like the U.S.-Mexico border or yeah. the borders in Central America, and the very same people. Right, who showcase the weapons for governments to buy, you know, go and tour the world, oh, yeah. right? And 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 they demonstrate what they are capable of doing. And so again, this is one of the big contradictions and paradoxes of the national security mentality, right? They're mm-hmm. they're telling us you need all this, right? And and you're you know create this monster border of enforcement and security and vigilance, um, and what it really does is not fight against so-called cartels but just fighting against poor people right and this is something that we have seen over and over in the years of the so-called drug war right the average victim of the drug war in Mexico tends to be young men from uh, ages 19 to 25 who were uh, poor and who were born poor and died poor brown with no education who died in the margins of the larger cities of Mexico, yeah. right? No narcos, you know, in a big private jet, you know, with the lion and the, yeah. the, the next seat well, or something. Like you know. or two. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. With, you know, with the zoo, like, you know, they right. keep still to this day peddling the fantasy of, you know, Pablo Escobar, you know, and, and the excesses yeah. of the Medellin cartel, which, you know, part of that is true, of course, but it is also true that he died, you know, in, in the rooftop of, you know, of, uh, of, of Colombia yeah. um, and, and killed. Almost like an animal, right? Uh, and, and, and his photo of uh, paraded, right? Like a, yeah. like a hunting uh, prowess. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so, what is really interesting, then again, is that uh, we keep investing in the lucrative business of national security. But in order to do that, we need to keep talking about cartels, right? We need to keep augmenting the fantasy that cartels mm-hmm. are so powerful. Now, of course, for example, the U.S. discourse is using the idea of the narco-terrorist. Yes, right? yeah. Uh, so the, you hear pr- this. I
1: never actually saw Sicario too, but the prayer rug at the beginning of Sicario 2 <laughs> was pointed out as an example and, of that. And this
2: is kind of like uh, – not a course 3.0, right? I mean, talking yeah. about the, this continuous history of right. it, if you remember um, back in the day, um, um, traffic, yeah. right? The, tra- the trafficker that appeared in those years. Uh, was some some form of, you know, a very tropical, sinister guy, you yeah. know, who has some capabilities. But, you know, was pretty much on the Mexican side of the yeah. border.
1: Yeah, right? a, sweaty, a sweaty Mexican businessman right. who would kill other Mexicans. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly.
2: But, you know, the the, the narco-terrorist of movies like Sicario, you know, it's no longer bound, b- bounded no, by national limits. he's a global limits, citizen. Right, right. It yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> he's a world traveler, right? <laughs> a well-stamped well, I mean, fast forward. In, in the first
1: Sicario, <laughs> they
2: first, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, the movie in detail, but uh, they find these Bodies, you know, in inside walls yeah. of a yeah, security house. Course. I think in the, on the U.S. side of the border, yeah. uh, somewhere in New Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it's really interesting, right? Because then Hollywood, what it does is that it absorbs and promotes propaganda, right? Yeah. Uh, but it changes and it shifts. This it shifts mm-hmm. with the propaganda discourse as it keeps on moving forward, right? And so the years, uh, you know, the late '90s, 2000s, you know, when Steven Soderbergh is doing Traffic, they have a very different idea, exactly. Uh, of the trafficking uh, world, right? There's a scene that I that I love to remember in, in traffic that I think is is just you know a perfect symptom for for what those years meant uh, of the uh, so-called drug war. I don't know if you remember, but it's Michael Douglas plays the drug are. I do remember that, yeah. Right, and and he's visiting the U.S. Mexico border. I think he's by San Isidro across from Tijuana. Right? Yeah. And you know they're right at the edge of the border. He's with you know the entourage of you know people working with him, and he's given this um, how do you say this in, in binoculars English? binoculars yes. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember the word I was thinking the word in in Spanish only he's given this binoculars right and he's looking across. As almost as if they were in in you know on the war front, right? Yeah.
1: As, as you as if you, you could exactly. cross over. As, as, as you right? could <laughs> see, you could see the like the, the 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 little guys in sombreros, right, right. Bringing over the right, bags right, of hashish, Right. And, and
2: Uzis. There's yeah. a there's a big truck that comes out of a security house that has like a like a scorpion. You yeah. Know, black, and yeah. It's supposed yeah. to be well, a that safe suitcase house. suitcase
0: is weirdly right. gun shaped. I mean, basically
2: <laughs> on broad daylight, moving drugs, right? And it's supposed to be a safe house. How safe it is if you can see it from the U.S. side? Yeah. <laughs> But, but then you know, not only is of <laughs> yeah, course, yeah, right not only is very stupid, right? The idea, the way they're portraying. But but then he says he asks the people around him. So who has my job on the Mexican side? And then they say very worryingly, like, well, nobody.
1: Nobody. Like, oh oh yeah. my god! Goodness. So who do we
2: talk to? No one. Yeah. I mean, we we just don't go across. And this is the the most extraordinary moment, right? Because by two thousand, right? There's been an entire decade of all kinds of treaties, yeah. of agreements, of basically coercion and extortion almost from the U.S. institutions in Mexico, not only to do what they say, but to even replicate the very post that the drug czar had in the U.S. We had a drug czar yeah. in Mexico by that time, right? Mm. And it only existed because the U.S. willed it into yeah. existence, yeah. right? Yeah. So what is amazing of this movie, right, is that it erases deliberately, right, the entire present history of the brutal violence yeah. of the U.S. national security paradigm in Mexico, right, and, and peddles this propaganda that Mexico is like a, some form of in you know, rogue country, mm. right, that doesn't obey, that doesn't Care that doesn't even think of human value, right? And 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 and, the, and just basically ruled and governed by traffickers, right? And so um, it's just an astonishing moment, right? Because um, uh, something is done uh, in that in that movie that installs this idea of um, Latin America as this emptiness of law uh, of lawlessness, right? Yeah. Of violence, and and this is done, name, uh, mind you, by a liberal. Filmmaker, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, this is Steven Sullivan, who who's supposed to be, you know, on the right side of uh, history. Right? And, you know, he's portraying actually the drug war debate from the democratic perspective. Um, this is what some sociologists call the Dove version of Hollywood, right? As opposed to the hawkish yeah. uh, okay. uh, version, right? So he's a Dove filmmaker. And when you really look at it, He's not, you know, he's yeah. a hawkish filmmaker disguised as a dove filmmaker, right? And yeah. this is what is so powerful about Hollywood propaganda, right? That it doesn't even look like propaganda; that it looks like the best intentions of the U.S. left, right? right? And and this is what you know uh, should give us uh, the the guiding lesson, right, for what is then supposed to come later, right? Um, the, the the film industry became so entangled and so intertwined and so penetrated by uh, the national security paradigm, by you know the F- Department of Defense, DEA, supervising their scripts, their productions, yeah. that by the time you get to Sicario, you know, they're just bidding their war. You know, they're doing exactly what they're told to do, right? And so the very first scene, uh, one of the first scenes in Mexico in Sicario, I, I'll never forget it because I uh, I I keep being wondering uh, and, and and just you know in shock and shocking all by by this thing is I don't know if you remember um, it's Benicio del Toro who plays, uh, I think, as a, a State he's Department like a, agent. Yeah, f- oh, I who, think he's
1: like a former he, he's, Mexican he, prosecutor turned hitman.
2: N- no, no, no. He's a, he's a hitman, but he. I, I don't think he's Mexican. I think he's supposed to be Colombian. I, okay. I forget. Oh, yes, it, but he is like now that. a State yeah. Department agent and then yeah. turns out to be CIA. Yeah. And he is with Emily Blunt, who is an FBI agent. Yeah. And they're coming across the border by Juarez, right? They're driving on the El Paso side. I'm from Ciudad Juarez, right? I'm from that city. And they're looking at it, and then they, they they look at it and say something like, "Here she is." Here it is, yeah. the, the beast. beast. <laughs> it's like Juarez. the beast. And then they go into Juarez, right? And just as they cross the border, of course, they see all oh, the bodies, bodies kind of hanging. kinds of bodies hanging right? yeah, I mean, this jungle yeah, yeah, of yeah, violence yeah, and yeah, death. Yeah. And then they're coming back across the, the bridge and there's a shooting, you know, with this almost like animalized uh, killers, right? Yeah, all they're very, yeah, they're Hulk. It's a very famous it's very scene. Very like tribal I, looking. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, there's very psychopaths, like like you know, that really look, look in a very racist way. Yeah, like uh, like I was, I kept thinking now of the Bukele prisons, right, in Salvador. i, I mean, never They, seen they actually images. just look like MS-13 guys. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. what they were going for. And I kept thinking, you know, what would it have been like to watch that movie movie in a Juarez uh, uh, movie theater, right? Uh, I mean, what would it be like for, for people watching this, like, oh, we live in the belly of the beast, yeah. and we didn't realize it, right? My parents were living there, my my brother, my nephews. Mm-hmm. I go to Juarez all the time, mm-hmm. right? And and just seeing my city and, and then my country portrayed as this, you know, like Trump would say, shithole country, yeah. right? It's not only just shocking, but... But extraordinary because most people accepted the film, even in Mexico, right? I mean, they were like, "Oh, it was cool, it was entertaining," you know. And and this is really the danger of propaganda, right? It doesn't really look like it. I mean, they're they're t- basically criminalizing the entire country, uh, but for the sake of entertainment, you really don't notice it, right? Yeah. And And this keeps happening uh, in series like Nauticals and all kinds of productions, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I that <laughs> scene, I remember watching that scene and just you know, it, yeah, it's. Just got me out of my head for a little bit when you're saying, you right. know, think, imagine being in that movie theater also surrounded by all other American, pro- you know, you got Coca-Cola right. everywhere and popcorn and trailers for all over the movies and, and th- you and go this outside is, uh, and it doesn't look anything like that.
2: Right. And this is a movie, if I'm not mistaken, written by uh, Taylor Sheridan. Who who is uh, the the, the script writer of of, uh, of Sicario? Who then became the producer of Yellowstone? I don't know if you oh, if you've God.
0: seen that. that is I have not yet. Although right? I know everyone's a freak for it. It is. Right I, now. It's one of those things
1: that I didn't know was happening, and then I saw everywhere. I saw
0: everyone's going for a high
1: he's, western summer. Like absolutely, a, absolutely. He's like kind of like a he's kind of like a liberal <laughs> Republican. Right, right. Like, of, like. You know, man, from a little bit out of time, and now yeah. he's in. Yeah, he, yeah, that's.
2: And what is amazing about that that series, I mean, and, and how it, you know, it, it plays well with uh, the imagination of a film like Sicario, is that it, it gives. Uh, it's a very complacent view of what the U.S. Is supposed to be and do, right? Yeah. So, from the Yellowstone perspective, it's you know these white cowboys, you know, who founded places like Texas and, and yeah. Montana, right? And and you know they're down to the to the ground, and they're they're really great men, and you know in a very woke way, you know, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, respect yeah. women, and they're they're just awesome people to be around. But they're they're very masculine, but they're not toxic.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <right>? not toxic. You know, the good right. kind of masculine. So, yeah, exactly,
2: exactly. Uh-huh. So they're good men. They've been right?
0: cleansed. Yeah. From the toxicity. Right.
2: And so the same writer then looks at Mexico and it's like, all oh, these, these assholes, you know, they're savages. just criminal yeah, yeah, psychopaths. Yeah, yeah. So don't even dare to cross the border because they'll kill you. Yeah. Uh, and, and and that for me is just so problematic, right? Uh, of course, not only because I'm Mexican, but because it, <laughs> it, it is racializing, right? Uh, not just my country's history, but in opposition to U.S. history. Yeah. Right? So the country that militarizes my country then washes its own face. Right? And appears to be
1: the good guy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> By the same writer who then looks at me and said, No, you're the criminal.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's you know, it's it's interesting too. We talk about national security as well. Um, and you know, there's the famous case of like the the origins of the Zetas, right? Right. These people trained at, I think what was 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 formerly School of the Americas. Sure. I don't know what they call it now. They might still call it School of the Americas. Right, right, right. No, it's um, called it. But you know, this 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 sort of like center. That has, has given birth to all of these, um, you know, assassins and killers. And that's exactly
2: and, the, one of the most important points, right? Yeah. A lot of the military, not just the CETAs, right, uh, the specialized forces in yeah. Mexico, for example, the special forces of the Marines in Mexico. Yeah. And also city and state police agents that compose special units to fight the drug war. They all have received training in the U.S. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they become efficient killers. Right. Um, not only the training, but the political support and literally the gear and the weapons yeah. to use them. Right. And right. this is part, of course, of not just the long history, but even recent history. Right. Uh, uh, the President Bush and then President Obama supported President Calderon uh, in the first deployments of the mm-hmm. uh, the drug war under what it was called then Iniciativa Merida. Right. The Merida Initiative yes. that gave them about three billion dollars in, in all kinds of uh, support and training. Um but now, of course, uh, these, uh, this is renewed in all, all kinds of other cooperation treatments and, and agreements to, su- to keep supporting it, right? So what is amazing then is that um, you have a, a security apparatus that is shaped, modeled, and, and set forth against people by the U.S. discourse, but also with explicit political and economic support. And yeah. when you look at what they've done then that's when when you really become resentful, right? Like I am. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Um, understandably. uh, The lethality index of the Mexican armed forces is the highest in percentage of uh, other Latin American countries. Even those... Uh, that are very securitarian in nature like Brazil for example right
1: Salvador like we mentioned Uh,
2: which by the way has its own film industry you know legitimizing I mean my god Um, that is that is yeah right and so this is extraordinary right because there you could see another phenomenon that happens a lot in in culture which is the the conflation of all these narratives of national security for example the guy who played uh, one of the most famous cops fighting the drug war in Brazil was uh, actor Wagner Moura mm-hmm. um, who then became Pablo Escobar right in the right. series Narcos right so he went from cop to To narco, right? Uh, And from Brazilian cop to Colombian narco, so he had to learn, you know, Spanish. Of Mm -hmm. course, in a very uh, fake way. I mean, if you're Latin American, you can hear his accent. Of course, doesn't make any sense. The same happens for Benicio del Toro, right? Uh Benicio del Toro played uh, the Mexican cop in Tijuana in traffic. Yeah. Then uh, became Caro Quintero, the Mexican trafficker from the 1980s. Then became Pablo Escobar, also himself, right? And in an interview, uh, Benicio del Toro used to say, "Well, you know, if you want to be an aspiring actor," Our Hamlet is Pablo Escobar. Oh <laughs> so you, you don't play Oof. Hamlet if you're a Latin American actor. Play Pablo Escobar. That's your litmus test, right? That's when you know that you become a great and, a, and an accomplished actor.
0: Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> uh, so this is extraordinary, right? Because this is a Puerto Rican actor that moves across countries, right? Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, whatever. And it doesn't matter, right? And it doesn't matter because we are looking at it from the perspective of the U.S. consumer, right? That has no subtleties in the differences between the countries, but in the end doesn't care because it is a Latin American narco anyway, right? It doesn't
1: matter. A narco can can come from any of those countries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, too, like... As an American – I'm actually one of the worst people to speak on this because I am one of the world's worst consumers of media in general. (laughs) I am too. I am too. I mean I have to consume in order to criticize. Yeah, but like it's (laughs) – like the the American sort of media portrayal of Mexico in general is I would say almost always – Either a like crazy fiery Latino woman right. um, who's like it uh, is sort of like a culture clash with maybe Absolutely. an uptight uh, guy of another race. I'm right there with you. Uh, or or Narcos, <laughs> right. right? Like I mean, there is there is it is a country um, you know directly next to ours. You know, there's there's I mean, especially being from California, like half the people I have known my whole life are you know either from Mexico or their parents are from Mexico. But the only real media representation you see of Mexico. Is, is violence is or always, sexuality? Exactly. It's right? always violence or mm. or this sort and of like sweaty sensuality. Yeah. And and you know I
2: I take a lot of crap for for, for having this position, but uh, but I, I I I must I can't I can't you know think otherwise. Um, for example, just lately they're celebrating that the the world billboard is taken by three Mexican songs, right? Some Bad Bunny and some Norteno band Grupo yeah. Frontera or something, and then this guy Peso Pluma who uh, has been making the rounds even in the late Talk shows in, in the U.S. Like I think he went to the Jimmy Fallon show or something, uh. and and these songs not only are you know very distasteful, but but this idea of <laughs> you know sex and you know I, and I'm out there and missing you and I just want to be with you, baby, yeah, baby, yeah, mommy, yeah, yeah. mommy. I, I don't know. It's just it drives me crazy, right? Because it, that's exactly what you know the mentality of making us appear uh, in, in 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 U.S. visibility and media ends up being, right? We either play the trafficker, the criminal. Or we are sexual objects, yeah. right? Or, or, or
1: <laughs> I would say the other thing too: the, 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 the thing that those are always based against right. is uh, a hard worker. Like Absolutely. A, a, I think I think also like like uh, the or the, on the flip side not a hard worker. not a hard worker Well, that, I th- <laughs> it's funny because I th- yeah I think sort of like that, that's like the hawkish the, dove. the poor refugee yeah, that, yeah. Has, to, that po- has to the poor refugee and right, sort of like the, the this, this, this yeah. simple hard worker I think right. is like how a lot of Americans would like to see like good Mexicans and the bad Mexicans are like the lazy right the uh, good Mexican the,
2: serves you food and costs exactly. a lot right? yeah in yeah. an orderly way and respects yeah, a lot yeah right? the other ones are just you know crazy drinking tequila and then shooting people. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, you know, and there's never room for just a citizen, right? Like, yeah, you know, like a just normal. a normal yeah, citizen exactly. that, you know, doesn't do any of those things uh, and, uh, and can have uh, an education and, you know, and, 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 and yeah. contribute in, in other shapes or forms in, in, in this country. Uh, but but going back to traffic, you know, I think that's why, you know, the um, the history of how we consume these objects is so important because it, it, it ends up being even more, dramatically decisive than official discourse itself. Mm-hmm. And so when I started studying um, uh, this culture of products, I realized there's like a, a chain of production, right? The, the official uh, paradigm begins with, you know, the institution saying something about the trafficker, right? Yeah. The DA saying Dolo Chapo is the largest, uh, the biggest criminal mind in, in, in history of the drug trade. And then it goes through a first filter, which is journalism. Mm-hmm. right and this is something that i criticize a lot in my book you know a lot of the journalists the most visible journalists in the us and in mexico that covered the drug war followed the script the right. the the, the, the yeah. to the letter of the dea right they started talking about drug organizations as they were supposedly you know, the biggest national security threats and then on a third level are the cultural products right which received this discourse already legitimized by the media and they received it in the most naive and um, predictable way, right? Because most uh, writers for TV shows or yeah. for film, they they think they do research, but they don't. What they do is they take the most visible journalistic uh, product out there, yeah, and then they listen to maybe official discourse on TV, and then they form their own opinion, which is not really an opinion but a mediation. Yeah, right? Right. they basically replicate what they hear mm-hmm. in the legitimized uh, discourse, right? Yeah, and so they uh, they end up reproducing. A state mentality. So what you consume for the most part is a state thought, right? right. Uh, something that the state first articulated and that we end up consuming and thinking that is the real, right? There's been men, many um, uh, studies of audiences of series like Narcos, and people who consume these things believe that they're looking some form of documentary product, right? That that it brings some yeah. form of history to, to their screen, and that's really the danger, right? That when they confuse Propaganda with history,
0: and on the flip side, it's important to to watch and read and listen to because it's a way of understanding how the state wants to articulate Absolutely. itself. Absolutely,
2: that's why I watch it, right? Yeah, it's a symptomatic viewing. Right? Uh, I end up hating it, but uh, <laughs> but you know, it's also entertaining, and that's part of the trick, right? right. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, Top Gun. <laughs> You know, the new mm-hmm. movie, right? The I new Top Gun. did not Con. see it, but yeah, I know. Yeah. Everyone, everyone loved that. it. Yeah. Right. Well, I watched it and it's very entertaining. I wa- I remember the, the the first one. I rewatched it just to make sense out of this. And, and it, what is really extraordinary about the new Top Gun is that uh, it's. It's a celebration of these pilots, right, and their skill, yeah. Um, and you know the history of you know U.S. pilots and 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 the things that they're capable of doing, in a moment when most of military operations are you are, are done by drones. I was about right? to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. Where pilots are not really needed, yeah. Right? But
0: the idea—that's pi- why <laughs> the idea of the pilot is so needed. Absolutely. But
2: this is the same thing that happens with Netflix, right? We totally. think, we talk about the pilots, we look at Tom Cruise, and like, oh my God, that guy's a hero. Yeah. Um, the same way we look at traffickers, right? Mm-hmm. We, we look at somebody on the screen that has no real model, right? That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't serve any purpose, right? The pilot is an outdated technology Uh, for military purposes. Mm. The same as the trafficker. The trafficker exists, but he's irrelevant when it comes to understanding national security. He's just the pretext, right? He's the object of the story, but he has no real relevance in the world. Yeah,
0: Which is why it's such perfect, like, the perfect fabric for the movies and for entertainment.
2: Right, and and you can keep on bringing uh, any, in in a new season, a new trafficker like they do in real life, right? Now that CHOP mm. was captured, right? You know, they they can always come to, you know, the the, yeah. the storage and, yeah. and they'll find new traffickers, right? Now it's their children, his children, right? right. Who are supposed to be uh, the real uh, c- uh, culprits for fentanyl. Right? Okay. So so now yeah. that the new DEA tune is that Mexico is solely responsible for fentanyl, mm-hmm. and that especially Chapo's children, right, are the ones who are supposed to be really the heads of uh, fentanyl. Well, this uh, Chapo's son was just captured, right, yeah. and, and from prison he sent a letter to the media, and and this is something really interesting. This just happened uh, about four days ago, uh, where he and his brothers basically say two things. One, you know, they don't deal fentanyl. That's what they say. I mean, and mind you, of course, you don't have to believe them, right? I mean, just like I'm here questioning official discourse, I'm also supposed to question, and I do, you know, what traffickers say. Mm -hmm. But what is really interesting is they say two things. A, you know, they don't do fentanyl. But B, more importantly... People keep talking about them uh, as if they somehow uh, headed uh, this organization called the Sinaloa Cartel. And they basically say, well, no such a thing really exists. What they call Sinaloa Cartel is a horizontal field of multiple uh, producers and traffickers that work independently, he says. And they don't bring uh, any money to us. They're they're, they're not subject to any accountability. They do their own business. Sometimes they they are related to us for operational purposes, but most of the times they just work on their own, right? And people use this word, the Sinaloa cartel, just politically to you know legitimize the militarization and whatnot, but in reality, he says, there's no such a thing. And then he moves on to, they moved on to talk about uh, culture, right? And mm-hmm. they say, look, you know, a lot of the film, a lot of the music that you hear that portray our lives, you know, they're just based on bullshit, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they have no idea what what is about uh, anything. They have no real insider information. And and, and this is consistent, at least, uh, with the way traffickers talk about themselves throughout history whenever they have a chance to do this independently, yeah. uh, directly to the media, right? I mean, it's not Which the same they don't
0: really get the opportunity. M- I mean, much. Chapo, right. Famous the Muslim, yeah, <laughs> Right, right. Yeah,
2: because, I mean, most traffickers you hear either have already been caught— uh, right. And so they're talking in in some process. For example, in the Chapo's trial, you know, they used a lot of traffickers in prison already to say, "Yeah, no, he was the ba- the badass monster, and he was our boss, and yeah. he ordered us to kill a thousand people, whatever." But when they talk about uh, the the business by themselves separately, independently, they all say kind of the same thing. That first, they say they live very precarious lives, not in the sense that they're
1: poor. Oh, they're part of the precariat. But,
2: right, but but not, the, but not in the sense that they're, they're poor. They're contractors. So. But in, the,
1: in the sense that their yeah. their quality of life is not great, right? I mean, I mean, they're... Yeah, yeah I they're, gotta be real. Like, <laughs> I mean, just, I, I, you know... I, I would love a lion, right? But like <laughs> if you have a lion but you have to live in like a <laughs> with a lion? <laughs> yeah, with one not only like that. But like, you know, it's like it's like the like the, the the sort of like mafia bosses or whatever. Right. They end up having to live in these really secluded areas. Right. Exactly. that's right? what I'm talking
2: about by precarious. A- and right?
1: being totally like
2: cut off from from yeah. normal life. Right. And they're always watching their back and yeah, and not they don't really enjoy much, you know, yeah. because uh, they they know their time is coming and it's coming fast.
0: Practicing, uh, digging their tunnels.
2: Right. <laughs> right. And then the the second thing they say that it's also very consistent is that nothing happens if you kill or or send a, a big boss to prison. Nothing is altered in the business, right? It's not suddenly that the the price of cocaine is gonna rise because El Chapo was captured, like mm-hmm. you know, like a, like Warren Buffett died and then you yeah, know yeah, uh, yeah. Berkshire you know collapses, right? Yeah. Nothing like that happens uh, in the world of drug trafficking, and and they explain why because they're just one among many other people who are involved in the business, right? They they don't control anything to that larger. Scale, right, and and I think history gives them, proves them right, right. Uh, every time you know somebody falls, like El Chapo, nothing happens in in the greater world of you know drug trafficking. But even more importantly, nothing really is demonstrated beyond, you know, what the DA says, right? In the CHAPO trial, they uh, were able to um, um, to pinpoint uh, $14 billion mm-hmm. for his entire career, $14 billion, so, but of course it's a lot of money for us, <laughs> for yeah. normal people. But in, but in the world of uh, uh, organized crime, it's not much. If you think, for example, that the Office of uh, Drug Control from the UN uh, claims that the cocaine uh, market should render you about $30 billion annually, right? Mm. A- and instead, Chapel only supposedly, according to the DA, what the DA was able to demonstrate, yeah. only gained about $14 billion in about 20 years. Of being Accrued the head, for, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 right yeah, yeah. Accumulated, right? Accumulate, fourteen yeah, yeah, yeah. billion years, fourteen million. I'm sorry, fourteen billion dollars in his entire career, about spanning about twenty years, more or less. The the legal cannabis industry in the U.S. Mm-hmm. now surpasses that figure in one single yeah, year, right? I mean, we're talking over twenty billion. Uh, of the legal cannabis um, industry in the U.S., in those states that it's been uh, yeah. legalized. So it's, it's extraordinary, right? So the myth of the, of the, you know, the, the kingpin uh, it completely crumbles and collapses when you really get to look at it um, uh, uh, directly in, in, in a process like uh, the, the trial uh, that they did on the chapel.
1: Well, we have to wrap up soon, but I think we'd be remiss not to talk about the current president of Mexico and, uh, especially in relation to a lot of the things you talk about in your book, the war on drugs features very prominently in your book and AMLO famously ended or publicly ended the war on drugs. And, you know, we also have talked quite a bit about the military and a lot has been made of the fact that the military has gained an even more prominent role within AMLO's administration. Um... What is what is uh, you know what what was your reaction I guess to to you know to hearing him talk about ending the war on drugs because I will say like you, you make a, a very deft point in that like yes the 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 deployment of the military to all of these cities uh, in around 2006 was concurrent with a massive spike in the number homicides yeah you know, uh-huh. in homicides and deaths uh, and and with sort of the rise of the cartel. Um, the so-called rise as, of yeah, the cartel, yeah, exactly. So-called, right? but like you know, <laughs> the cartel as such, right? You right, know, right. Um, but Amlo seemed to be, uh, you know, at least speaking publicly but trying to have a different course right. on this. Well, I mean,
2: uh, like everybody else, you know, sympathizing with the left in Mexico, I was happy when he got elected. I voted for him. And uh, I'm still enthusiastic about different things that uh, that his presidency has brought. Um, and and of course, I, I was hopeful when he announced uh, the ending of the drug war. But what he meant by that in 2019, when he took office, was that he was suspending immediately all military operations Uh related to what, what the U.S. called the Kingpin strategy, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that you pursue and tackle, you know, the head of a cartel. And, and once you do, you know, the, the, supposedly the organization falls apart, right? Um, and, of course, we know that the end result is, is quite the opposite, yeah. right? And, and violence rises, and, and, and we have seen this bloodshed. So uh, I think he was very justified in, in trying to put an end to this right and um and so he did so uh, in 2019 and and some in some uh effect of this was very positive in the first months Right. Uh, I can give you a couple examples. Right. Yeah. Uh, for example, in uh, in that same year, in, tw- in 2019, uh, two things happened. There, there was a group of people extracting illegally oil and gas from from um, from pipelines pipeline. yeah. uh, in, in especially in this in the state of Guanajuato, right, in central Mexico. And one of those pipelines exploded when they were trying to extract illegally by poking holes into the pipeline directly. Yeah. Um Supposed to uh, going with the military to you know uh, arrest everyone and you know or even shoot everyone that <laughs> were in the near vicinity. Uh, Amlo order uh, you know medical assistance, help everyone. Uh, didn't bring any charges to everyone, to anyone, and um, and basically treated this as a tragedy, right? Yeah. Uh, where you know desperate people were were hurt. By this illegal activity, um, then you move to um, uh, late uh, twenty nineteen when the military ordered the, uh, the, the arrest of El Chapo's son Ovidio Guzman in mm-hmm. the city of Culiacan, without the president's consent, right? Um, yeah. and, and this is something also extraordinary because it tells you it tells you how the military had. Its inertia fighting the drug yeah. war and disobey directly uh, the uh, presidential policy of ending all uh, operations, right? And they they try to capture him. The operation failed, and, and Amlo order uh, all the military uh, personnel to leave. Uh, the city of Culiacan. This was portrayed as, you know, the uh, a big triumph for the traffickers. Not, not at all, right? I mean, first of all, the the military uh, outnumbered the traffickers eight to one, according to media reports. They could have easily apprehended him and, and killed a lot of people on the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Amlo refused to, right? And and he publicly said it, stated, "Well, we don't want just to kill people over one trafficker. I don't see the point in doing that." And you know, and and very, you know, candidly, um, put himself out there to to take all kinds of criticism but I thought it was the right move and I still believe it was the right move. Mm-hmm. However um, by 2020 you know, he started um, talking um, more, uh, you know, in depth with his military commanders and and, and th- what we have, I guess, the equivalent of the joint chiefs uh, yeah. in Mexico. And, of course, U.S. pressure uh, continued. Um, and so by by the end of 2020, um, a very different tune started being uttered from presidential palace. Right. So, so you know, well, you know, we're going to keep having the military presence. We're going to create a new federal force, a new federal police called the National Guard that was supposed to uh, replace the military in all security uh, operations in Mexico, but it turned out to be just an extension of the military that is now under the control of the armed forces. Yeah. Um, And so we're back to the militarization of the country. It's not
1: under civilian control. Right. And
2: not only that, we are back to operations of, you know, trying to capture traffickers, and, and, of course, they, in the end, ended up, Capturing the son, the same son of Chapo Guzman with a much larger uh, military force over, I believe it was over 3,000 soldiers that that came um, to get him uh, in Culiacán uh, with, you know, with this horrible display of violence and and whatnot. And so uh, I'm sad to say, right, that um, in the greater scheme of things, AMLO is just acting the normal securitarian way. Right, so I am disappointed, of course, but I'm not surprised in the sense that uh, he's just responding to the logic of the militarization that goes on all across the continent. Right, this is what happens in Colombia, I you know, with the drug war. This is what happens with President Bukele in Salvador. Mm-hmm. Right, and what is this thing that then is happening? Well, the militarization is starting targeting consistently poor brown people, right, and poor areas of the country. That's really what this drug war is doing, right? And it's advancing uh, geopolitical interests, right, of the U.S. and transnational companies. And in the name of security, we keep on going uh, with the destruction of civil society.
0: What do you think accounts for the the shift in his, I don't know, uh, orientation, let's say, towards the military?
2: Well, I think it's a combination of factors. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first, uh, like I mentioned, right? There's there's strong pressure, um, by national pressure from sure. from the U.S. and not just the U.S. alone, right? It's a it's a transnational idea that you have to fight the drug war, right? And it comes from different institutions, not just the U.S., like I said, but you know, the US, the EU, the um, the UN, uh, and different organizations, also within Mexico, of course. And they're right in Mexico that it's yeah. very heavily interested in promoting the drug war, and then it comes from the military itself, right? The military has, like I mentioned, grown tremendously in influence and in budget, right? Uh, And their um, domestic presence is so extraordinary uh, that, you know, it's it's difficult to let it go, right? I mean, once you control uh, the territory and exert a form of sovereignty, right, uh, over uh, over different parts of uh, Mexico, why would you willingly... uh, um, Seed that power and control, right? Um, um, and, 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 and for what purpose? For, and along with it, and this is something that uh, that I also study in my new book, um, you have the question of the national security discourse uh, diversifying its object, right? So it's not just the trafficker uh, that is at stake in the narrative, right? But also undocumented migration. Mm-hmm. Terrorism right. uh, and just simply human displacement altogether becomes a question of national security. So, so the militarization is not just aimed at you know fighting traffickers; it's also uh, aimed at human smugglers. You know, people who smuggle avocado. You know, mm-hmm. people who are engaged in oil theft. Right, <laughs> all kinds of other things: extortion, kidnapping. Right, yeah. and and all those aspects of criminality are, are often conflated with the trafficker, right? So the trafficker becomes the stand-in metaphor for everything that goes wrong in Mexican society. So it's very difficult to cut it short, right? Because you can claim, for example, that marijuana is out of the game now, that it's legalized, mm-hmm. uh, but then here comes fentanyl, right? Uh, a synthetic drug that only needs precursors from China yeah. uh, and very easily manufactured in small labs. Can, that can go undetected, right? Um, and 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 so you can rearm the the narrative, right, of right. national security. And for that purpose, you end up needing the military uh, again and again and again, right? And so uh, often I I am asked, you know, what what is my stand when it comes to legalizing drugs? And of course, you know, like any. A uh, reasonable person, intelligent person, I I am for it, right? I think we should legalize all drugs immediately and cease uh, the criminalization of consumers especially, right? But that would not solve violence uh, in Mexico altogether because uh, as the DA already astutely tells us, right,
1: cartels are not even about
2: drugs anymore, right? I mean, they're about
1: whatever yeah. you want it. It's it's, it's more, I mean, that, that's, that's from what I mean. I understand just the, and, and I do, I think it is, I agree with you. Like I think, like saying like these drug traffickers are doing all of these other things too, is misleading because from what I understand, it's not even just the drug. It's like the governors of some of these. Right, right, right. You right. know what I mean? Like this is we we had on. We were talking about earlier. This guy Seth Harp, and he he very astutely talked to us about this. Like it's like it's not just like, you know the the this cartel is also engaged in these other criminal activities. It's like part and parcel with like officers and high up officers of the state. Right. Like. Yeah,
2: and and I think the so in the end that the the, the work cartel is, is what in political theory is called an empty signifier. Yeah, I was going right? to say the empty vase. Uh, right, it's a concept that floats around, right? Mm-hmm. That you can re-signify uh, mm-hmm. historically with whatever content you want, right? So if okay. the, if the drug cartel peddling uh, heroin or cocaine uh, was something uh, that drove uh, the national security mentality in the '90s, now of course the traffickers have become um, parallel to to narco terrorists, right, the organizations that are just out there, you know, terrorizing uh, civil society on both sides of the border, and that engage in all kinds of sophisticated crime, including, for example, uh, oil theft and and, and gas resources, et cetera. So, so for example, now some cartels are even blamed for uh, illegal extraction of energy resources. Mm -hmm. In in parts of the country where, ironically, where the the extraction is done mainly by transnational companies from China, from uh, Canada, from uh, the UK, and of course from the US. Oh yeah, I right. Say, don't um, forget the big boys, <laughs> right? Uh, so, for example, you know, in in the years of the reign of terror of Los Zetas in the state of Tamaulipas, uh-huh. you had one of the largest uh, uh, projects for laying up pipeline, right, all across the state uh, and across the border, all the way to California, by uh, one of the largest companies for for energy, right? Uh, and and you know, in 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 and in that um, exploration of the market, in extraction of, of, of gas, all kinds of transnational companies come along, right? And 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 with the help and support of the both the U.S. and the Mexican government, it is very easily done, right? And so one has to wonder how is it possible that you know in a territory that is taken supposedly by cartels, you know, engineers can very quickly and easily create uh, and, and lay this pipeline, right, and, and extract natural gas, right? And so um, this this question, of course, is, is only answered uh, politically, right? Because it seems to be that uh, there are two separate Mexicos, right? One that is ripe for investment, for foreign investment, mm-hmm. for of all course. kinds of entrepreneurship, right? And that is open for business from China, from Europe, from the U.S. And then at the same time, simultaneously, the very same territory is a site for... Traffickers for terrorists, you know, and the militarization is needed to fight them because mm-hmm. otherwise Mexico is a failed state. So it's it's very extraordinary to hear both uh, debates happening, right? If you if you listen to podcasts uh, for world business, don't do that, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, it's I do I'm because kidding, I I'm I want I kidding. need yeah. to uh, inform myself about how they're sounding yeah. these things. They seem to talk about you know Northern Mexico like you know the this new land for uh, for for business, right? Mm-hmm. And that is there's that is easy to invest. You know, you have Tesla coming to the state of Nuevo Leon, right? Um, BP, Chevron, all these companies, you know, that are involved in in the extraction of gas. uh, And... The At the same time, the electrical coming. revolution, yeah. right? The clean energies. Totally. Uh, you have aeolic parks, you know, in southern Mexico, and in those very same places, you have cartel activity, right? right? Uh, and you have the militarization, uh, you know, uh, supposedly fighting the bad guys. Some journalists have uh, pointed out that in many uh, of these uh, places. The function of the military is to facilitate the extraction of resources, right? And and in some cases, violence uh, works to depopulate. Communal lands, we see right? The, we to see displace this in, we've people. We talked about
0: this happening in the yeah, Philippines. Yeah, the clearing out and yeah.
1: uh,
2: right. the
0: creation of new markets.
2: Exactly. And, you know, when you're pushing people out by violence, nobody's asking questions, right? No, there's no political resistance. There's no, uh, you know, environmental uh, militants, right, trying to protect the land because cartels are, you know, crazily killing people mm-hmm. left and right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, in in the end, you know, uh, this is what my my friend and colleague, uh, Don Paley, called this is drug war capital. Capitalism, Right. This is this is the way uh, uh, one way uh, in which uh, capitalism uses, instrumentalizes the idea of national security to advance uh, in uh, transnational interests.
0: Well, the book is so fantastic. I really do. With such a provocative title. (laughs) (laughs) The title provokes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. Um, We'll definitely link to it in the notes. And I'm looking forward to. You, your second, or your not second book, but your new book, right. there's still not a, an English translation. Right. The,
2: the book is called the new book is called uh, I realize I never said the title uh, La Guerra en las Palabras, which I guess translates roughly like a War Within Words, mm. and I call it an, int- an intellectual history of the narco in, in quotations uh, in Mexico, and and it covers the years 1975 to 2020 to the AMLO presidency from Operation Condor. To uh, the annual presidency, and what I do in this book is, I I research uh, national archives in the U.S. and in Mexico, presidential uh, archives, uh, institutional archives like the D.A., the F.B.I., and what I try to uh, piece together is uh, the operation, the first emergence of all these concepts, you not know, the idea of cartel, the idea of the boss of bosses, yeah. you know, silver or lead, all these expressions, yeah. uh, and how they fit. Uh, into this greater narrative that keeps radicalizing across decades until we got to the what I call the simulated war of president mm. calderon right and by simulation I mean uh, that they're supposedly fighting uh, an enemy that uh, requires uh military force uh, when in the in reality what they were doing is occupying the territory and and harming the most vulnerable and and, and least protected uh parts of society right the the poor uh, for the most part and people displaced in, in in entire regions right we have um, I mean there's so much to talk about but I could just simply um, uh, wrap it up saying that you know we have one of the largest, populations for internal displacement in, 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 in Latin America. Of course, Colombia uh, was the most affected by this. Uh, over six million people displaced, but in Mexico, um, uh, numbers are not exactly known because there's not an official tally about this. Uh, but you know, people uh, talk about anything in the range of 500 thousand to a million people uh, internally displaced. And this is in part what we're seeing also uh, uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border, right? People seeking uh, uh, asylum um, coming from this context of extreme violence where they have been literally pushed out by the armed forces, uh, trained and supported and backed by the U.S.,
1: You know, narcos may not exist, but narcs definitely do. I'll demonstrate that for you right now. A guy named Ham Hand sold me $40 bags of cocaine at the beauty bar for a number of years in San Francisco. If you are a police agent or in the DEA, hit me up and I will, for the small sum of $500,000, give you his cell phone number. (laughs) (laughs) I I used to tell people – Liz, I used to tell people that um, like, people asked what I would do Mm. at parties and stuff. This is like a number of years ago. I would be like, oh, I narc. Like, I like if I buy Coke from a guy at a bar, <laughs> like, I'll call the police and sell there's inf- information. You know, like, someone sells me like, $20 for the Coke. Uh-huh. I'll just turn him in for a reward and stuff like and that. And you
0: just look them straight in the eyes and go, business is
1: booming. Business <laughs> is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I asked for uh, – for, was I with – I was with somebody recently. When somebody – no, I wasn't with you, I don't think. Somebody came up to me and was like, do you, do you have any drugs to sell?
0: And it was no, like, I know you're mean?
1: not a narc, because police narcs are not that stupid.
0: You know what I mean? But what are you? Then? What do you mean? Do you have any drugs to sell like on your person? Yeah, I'm like, what like where you like, you're gonna like open your coat and be like, why well, yes, check out my wares. <laughs> and then they like all these things kind of like all these little bags like slink, you know, drop down. It was at a
1: party. <laughs> I have actually no idea, I feel like this might have been in LA. It was at a party, and I have I was so weird. I was like, no. And then he asked me again – or he said, do you have any party drugs? And he asked me again and I was like, dude, I'm going to like s- strike you with a closed fist if you don't keep – you know, if you
0: keep insisting on pestering me. Mm. It was bizarre. Sounds like he needs to learn the art of conversation.
1: Yeah. Just see if someone's visibly on cocaine and then pretend that you know them. Strike up a conversation and then jingle your keys around like they're or a cat. Or
0: just talk about something else. Yeah. Let's find a new topic. Natural wines. All okay. right, everyone. With that, I'm Liz. My name is Brace,
1: a.k.a. the Dime Dropper. And, of course, we have with us Young Chomsky, who will be sworn by federal agents immediately after we leave this studio because I might have made a little phone call, told a couple of fibs, and that ends the podcast permanently that we call... True and on. We'll see
0: you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye